Well, good morning, everybody. How you doing? I hope you're doing good. We're going to jump into this series, and I'm excited about what we're about to do. Uh, but everything that we are going to talk about is going to require uh, that each and every one of us uh, looks at God's Word and looks at this study with a deep level of reverence and a desire to understand it with a, um, what I believe would be a genuine heart for God's Word and a love for God's Word. So we're going to jump into this and we'll get, um, we'll get as far as we get today, uh, but this is, going to be a, this is going to be a very fun series. So if you didn't come to think today, um, it's not going to work. So anyway, okay. So today we, we begin a very important series in the life of our church. The title for the series is Paul, Women, and Wives. And the objective is to learn and grow in our understanding of the role of women in ministry. Now, during our time together, uh, we're going to cover a lot of information and we're going to learn a lot of various viewpoints. And so I encourage you to take notes. I encourage you to listen back to what's been said each and every week. I encourage you to study these ideas for yourself. You're going to need to study these ideas for yourself. Uh, throughout the rest of the week, and I also want to make this invitation to you. If you have questions, if you have thoughts or ideas, I want you to email me, Nathan at NathanFrankhauser.com. Nathan at NathanFrankhauser.com. By the way, I just said that, and I heard my mom, Nathan. Anyway, so I, I don't know what, what was with that, but anyway, Nathan at NathanFrankhauser.com. Proper Focus Church on Women and their God-given roles is vitally important to every church. Can I get an amen? amen? It is vitally important to every church. It is also vitally important to the home, and it is important to, vitally important, to society as a whole. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 says this. This is the NASB translation. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone, I don't need any amens yet, but, but I understand, right? It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now, there's a slight deviation in this translation that needs to be fixed. It needs to be understood. Uh, and so I believe, in my opinion, uh, based on looking at the original text, I think the King James actually does interpret this one better. Here's what the King James says. And the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a help meet. Clear as mud, right? Help meet. What in the world is a help meet? And man, listen, it's M-E-E-T, not M-E-A-T, okay? <laughs> anyway, okay, so she's a help meet. What does that mean? Wow. Don't give me a wow, you guys. Anyway, the literal translation here is a helper who is meet, which means, this is an adjective, it is describing what that helper is. And so here is the proper definition of one who is meet. It is one who is suitable for, write this down, the task. The King James says, a helper who is suitable for him. <laughs> That's fine, but the truth is, it's a helper who is suitable for the particular task. The task that was set before Adam, and then consequently Eve, because he needed that help, uh, the, the task that was set before them was to rule and reign. 
They were supposed to be uh, the first priest, the first king and queen of everything. It wasn't good for Adam to be alone, and God is the one who established that. So he gave someone who is suitable for the task at hand. Now, I really want to spend some time helping you understand the depth of what I'm saying. So it doesn't mean that woman is somehow inferior to man because she was created second. It doesn't mean that she's an employee. I'm looking at you, men. Right? Doesn't mean that she's an employee. It doesn't mean she's a, a servant. And even though the King James and the NASB would say a helper who is meet, she is not the help. Okay? Can I get an amen? Right? She's not, she's not that. I got way too many women on that one. Can I get the men to actually say Amen. Amen, right? It's not go and make me a sandwich, woman, okay? That's not how this works. On the other side of this, please, women, (laughs) listen to me. On the other side of the spectrum, it also doesn't mean that woman is somehow sent to be a savior and a rescuer for a man who can't get his work done, okay? Can can I get an amen? Amen. Okay, that was a lot of men. How about women? Can I get an amen? Okay, it was not good for man to be alone. Make sure you hear this. We are talking about something bigger than just um, trying to help get a job done. It, It does not speak here of Adam's inability to do a task. It does not say Adam couldn't do it. It says it wasn't good for him to do it alone. Do you understand the difference in those things? It is a very important distinction. Nothing suitable could be found for Adam. And according to the scripture, apparently they looked, right? So what was the the point? Is it a contrast between the, the birds and the animals and woman? No, 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 no. See, God said there was nothing suitable for Adam. They needed, he needed someone like him. And so from Adam, woman is made. And the point of this is that woman is of the same kind. Woman is of the same kind. You can think that a dog is man's best friend, but that is missing it, right? The woman is supposed to be his best friend. It is supposed, she is supposed to be his helper in the task, Okay. So woman is, some, uh, is someone who corresponds to the man in perfect partnership for the tasks that he and she have to do. The role of women is vital, and guess who made it that way? God. God is the one who made it vital. In this series, we're going to be focusing on women's roles within the church, but throughout our time together, you will see that this will bring clarity to women's roles in many other areas, the home, society, life in general. One of the challenges that we face at the outset of this is the glaring tension within the church, both the present church and the past church, not to mention the tension within the secular world over women's roles. How many of you have your eyes wide open and you know that there's lots of tension between men and women? Okay, the rest of you come out from under the rock you're living in, right under, and see what's happening. This tension divides churches, it divides households, and it even divides societies when you look at the kind of the meta part of life. Not surprisingly, we were told this division would occur. Hmm, imagine that. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. It's amazing what we, will, what we would actually 
what peace we would actually have if we looked at God's word and trusted that what he said was true and, and it was uh, to help us. It says this, the woman, to the woman, this is post-fall, this is instituting the curse for disobedience to God. And man has already been dealt with, but listen, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, in pain you will bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. You need to notice something right now. This is so important. Everything listed in Genesis 3.16 are results of the curse. Not one of these proclamations, please hear me, this is where it starts to change. Not one of these proclamations is a God-given prescription for how life was designed to be. Not one of them. And if this is true, and I believe it is, it has staggering implications. Let's look at that text again. Number one, how many of you know pain preexisted the fall? It did. What, was, what, what, what happened because of the curse? It was greatly increased. You have to have something to increase it, right? Pain is a wonderful marker. For something going wrong, <laughs> right? If you were, if Adam's walking through the garden and he gets cut with a thorn and he doesn't have pain, he bleeds out and dies. What fun is that, right? Pain preceded the fall. There's not a problem with pain. The problem is the, the curse comes and brings an expanded level of pain in childbirthing. That's the first result of the fall in verse 16. Second, reverse, second uh, result of the fall in verse 16. Your desire will be for your husband. That sounds pleasant, but that's not what those words mean. <laughs> your desire will be for your husband. So after the fall, all women were like, honey, I love you. We all know that's just nonsense. What really is, what's being said here is your desire will be to rule your husband. How many of you know that that is true? It happens. That's part of the tension. But guess what else is a result of the curse? The very next line. We don't read it this way. We need to start changing our heads. And yet he will rule over you. You know that that was not the design prescription from the beginning? That is a result of what happens in the fall. There will be a leader. There will be one who leads. Why does he say it? Why does he say it? Because he's trying to point us to something that is going to happen as a result of the chaos that is ensued because of the fall. So, all of the things listed in Genesis 3.16 are a result of the curse. Not one, again, not one is a proclamation or a God-given prescription for how life is designed to be. We're going to talk about this and other ideas in the coming weeks, but you're going to have to keep coming back to find out more. I love it. This is really good. I'm, I'm getting better at that part. Anyway, keep you coming to church. Whatever position you do hold or come to hold concerning women in ministry, or even if you have no position at all in all of this, or if it's brand new to you, the series that I'm going to present to you is designed to give the overarching ideas and then to allow each of us to weigh the evidence for ourselves as we do this church. We must allow ourselves to be governed by principles of charity. Two of those principles are as follows. Number one, God desires mercy and not sacrifice, and especially with respect to the law. All you have to do is look at it in the context and what Jesus is talking about when he delivers these ideas. 
God desires mercy and not sacrifice. That is a charity or a mercy or a grace. And it is especially in light of the law. That's one. And then the second is Paul's call to the Ephesian church in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Here's Paul's words. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you. Who is Paul talking to in Ephesians? The church. Who is the church comprised of? Men and women, right? I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, brief disclaimer. I have no delusions of grandeur here. I know that this issue has been argued for eons of time, and it's going to be argued for eons more. I know that I won't definitively settle this issue in every individual's mind. I promise you I won't do it. So if you came here wanting the only answer that there ever could be, you're not going to find it today. But as a pastor, I do hope to at least contribute to and further a meaningful conversation when it comes to men and women and women's roles in the church. My desire is to uncover what is plausible and not just what is possible. I've talked about this a lot lately. How many of you know when we're reading the Bible, all things are possible? I'm sure when you're sitting down with your buddies and you're having your Bible study and somebody says, what's that mean to you? It's possible whatever you answer is true. It might not be plausible though, okay? And plausibility, we need evidence, we need proof, we need ideas that support uh, other biblical ideas that support the positions that we hold to. So I want to I wanna uncover what is plausible in our understandings of women in ministry, not just settle for what is possible. At Pierce Point, I share a responsibility, and I'm, I want you to hear my exact words. I share a responsibility to lead each of you along well-informed paths, right? The role of women is one of those paths that needs to be well-informed, but it is an extremely practical path that will have o a, a continually observable effects within our church. Views on this subject directly affect at least half the population of the church. How many women are in the room? Raise your hand. Look around, guys. It's over half of this population, right? Okay, so what we believe and what we hold to will affect over half the population of our church. And as such, it's not to be taken lightly. So if you have a position and at the end of this whole series you determine that you disagree with your church, you disagree with me, you disagree with our position uh, as a team that is leading you, then... Uh, talk to us about this, right? But it is not something to just slough off and say, ah, whatever. It's, it's not that big of a deal or it, you're wrong and I'm right and I just don't want to talk to you about this. It's too important to ignore uh, and too important to treat uh, flippantly. The series is also no mere statement of faith, meaning something believed but left on a shelf like most creeds and confessions. Quite honestly, most creeds and confessions need to be left on a shelf to collect us too. But this is not that way. This is too important and practical of an issue. Instead, this is a series and a derivative position which demands action. What do I mean by that? The study and the understanding of God's word has a derivative effect. It produces something. And that is action. 
inside of our lives. And so what we do and how women play a part in the church is important. And that's going to change quite drastically. Otherwise, if we just hold to a position, if we just talk a good game, if we just declare our faith, but it never has feet, you know what we're really doing? We're politicking, pandering, and posturing. And the church has too much of that crap going on anyway. And so does society. And if you know me, if you know me for any length of time, I just can't play that game. If we're going to believe something, we're going to act on it. Yes? That's the way we have to do it. Okay. So, as we jump into the fray today, we're going to take a look at the spectrum of ideas that are promoted within the Christian world. Although there are essentially two camps on this subject, neither camp is monolithic, okay? What do I mean by the term monolithic? I mean that neither camp entirely agrees even within their own ranks. Is that a surprise to you, <laughs> right? There's more division in these two camps than there are in evangelical Christianity at large, which is a lot of division, okay? And so we're going to look at two main ideas here. We're going to look at the general overview of these two ideas, and then we're going to look at two videos that are representative of a point on that spectrum on both sides, okay? And when we go through those videos... I'm going to chew them up. I'm going to analyze them, and I'm going to show you where the arguments are not good arguments, where they don't actually provide any help. I'm also going to show you how contentious this argument really is. This, this argument is not, if you came here today and thought, women in ministry, like, what's the big deal? You're about to find out what's the big deal, because people just get livid on this issue. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to analyze each of these things. Um, neither camp, as far as I can tell, is free from error. Neither camp, as far as I can tell, is free from error. So here are the two statements. First, the complementarian view. Will you say that with me? Complementarian, also known as the traditionalist view. But again, remember this, please remember this. There is a massive spectrum on this. Complementarians believe that all people are created equal in value and yet are designed specifically for independent roles within the church and society. Sounds awesome, doesn't it? There's a lot of truth in that statement. Can you understand why people hold to it? Of course you can one of the most basic and simple understandings of why we would say, yeah, I agree with that, would be simply having kids. How many of you know that moms and dads are all created equal, and yet they're unique in their responsibility? Thank the Lord, because <laughs> I don't want to have a baby anytime soon. Anyway, so they're, they're complimentary. You can see why there is, are people who lean to this and believe this, because there's truth in the statement. On the opposite side of that, we have the egalitarian. Here's what the egalitarians believe. They believe that all people are created equal in both value and roles within the church and society. And so on a rough level, well, first of all, you can see the truth in that, right? You can see the value in that, and you can see why people hold to this position. It shouldn't be, any, it shouldn't be a stretch. It shouldn't be hard. Okay, so we've got the complementarian view and we have the egalitarian view. But the thing you need to notice about both is the value of women is not what's under debate. It's the function of women. The value of women is not what's under debate. It is the function. And please hear me in this, and this is way before you're ever going to hear the position our church holds. By the way, it's going to be weeks, so 
Anyway, okay, so here's, here's the point. Value of women is not the problem, but if your function in life is what gives you your value, I want to challenge you to break from that. I want to challenge you to break from that. If your career, men or women, is what gives you your value, you've missed it, okay? If your role within any given church is what gives you your value, we've missed it. It's not our function that determines value. Our value has to be set, and our function then can be independent of feelings and emotions that, that trip us up. Feelings and emotions are awesome, but they can trip us up. Amen? Okay, so value is not the issue. Function is what is really under debate. But value used to be the issue. Before we get to these two videos, value used to be the issue. I want you to hear this because this is, this is abrasive, what you're about to hear. You're going to be shocked, and then when I share with you how long this position has been held, you're going to be like, what? People, people are dumb. Okay, listen to this. The synagogue prayer of Paul's day. This is the synagogue prayer of Paul's day. And by the way, this is still in the synagogue prayer of today. In Jewish circles. Listen. Here's what it reads. God, these are men who are supposed to pray this prayer. God, I thank you that you have not made me a Gentile. That sucks for us. Anyway, okay. I thank you that you have not made me a slave. And I thank you you have not made me a woman. What? To which the women of the congregation would respond, God, I thank you that you have made me according to your will. Do you know what's implied there? Women are subpar to men, and women need to accept that that is God's will, and they should just thank him for it. This is stupid, <laughs> right? Sneaking in my position, but that's just dumb, okay? That is the problem. That value was held to and that value was held to up and through the Reformation. Okay? We're not talking about value anymore. Each one of us was created in the image of our God. Okay? What we're talking about here is just function. And that function is important. And I'll show you at the end why that function is so vitally important. So, the first view is going to be the complementarian view, and we would have uh, no better representation of this kind of mainstream-esque uh, view uh, other than John MacArthur. So I'm going to play this video. I'm going to do what you see on YouTube when people critique things. I'm going to have Miss Brittany stop it every once in a while, and I'm going to make some comments. So we're going to start with John MacArthur. Here you go. We're going to start that again with volume. <laughs> it might be shocking to you to know this, but in a survey conducted in 2017, about 80% of Americans are comfortable with a female pastor. 62% of practicing Christians are open to women pastors. 40% of evangelicals are fine with women pastors. 
In pastoral training, there's a degree, a graduate degree called a Master of Divinity. It's generally speaking a three or four year degree to prepare you for pastoral ministry. 50% of women enrolled in seminaries, 50% of, I should say, MDiv students in seminaries are women preparing for pastoral ministry. 25% of seminary faculties are women. That means you have women faculty members teaching women students to be pastors. 11% of seminary presidents are women. 27% of pastors across this country are women. This is an explosion. Pause that. This is an explosion. 80% of Americans are okay with women being pastors. 62% of, and you need to notice what he does with how he communicates. His rhetorical strategy is important and it is intentional. And this is what happens in these arguments because people employ this nonsense and it convinces people of things, but it's a problem. 80% of Americans, who are Americans? Just Americans. He is implying non-believers. Lumped in with the non-believers who we are not a part of. He lumps in 62% of, scare quotes, practicing Christians. How does he know? He knows because if you believe women can be pastors, you're not a real Christian. Do you understand what he's doing? Please understand what's happening. And 40% of evangelicals are okay with it. Why doesn't he do supposed evangelicals? Because he's an evangelical. We're all considered a part of the evangelical camp. 50% of MDiv students, Masters of Divinity students, are women. 25% of seminary faculty are women. And 11% of seminary presidents are women. And 27% of pastors are women. Do you notice what is happening with the complementarian view here? It is not only not okay for women to be pastors, but they actually have a problem with them being educated and for them to be anywhere in seminary. Where is that in the Bible? Can you answer the question? You can't, and neither can John MacArthur. I'm going to do this with both sides. I'm going to chew up the stupidity of these arguments and the problems that they put out there. But the idea here is that women shouldn't be pastors, and the idea is that women shouldn't learn or be the presidents of seminaries. They shouldn't even be doing this. I love the fact that he says 25% of seminary faculty are women, which means you have 25% women teaching 50% of women to become pastors. Strangely enough, John MacArthur leaves out an important stat. Only 41% of graduates from seminary ever go on to full-time ministry. So even if it was a problem, even if John MacArthur is right, it's far less number than he's asserting. But it's an explosion. Do you know what people do when they use these terms? They're trying to get a reaction. That reaction is to get you fired up and say, we have a problem. We have a problem on our hands. See, this, this becomes a lot of... Uh, we're going to see a lot of logical fallacies in the arguments here. But this is a big deal. So I'm going to let John MacArthur continue on. And this is one of the biggest ones. And you really need to listen to his words. Go ahead. In 1960, 2% of clergy were women. The women's movement has basically just erupted in the church. And the last frontier for the movement is the evangelical church. 
The last frontier to fall victim to the rebellion of feminism along with cultural Marxism. Perhaps women pastors and women preachers are the most obvious evidence of churches rebelling against the Bible. It's no big deal. It's not an issue. Women in ministry and in, in, in women in ministry, it's not a big deal. Trust me when I say this is an issue where people fight. And I'm not playing a game when I say they fight hard. Please understand what just happened. Ad hominem attacks. Uh, all, there's, a, there's a Latin term, ad baculum, which is an appeal to fear. And this is, what the, this is what the argument is. This is an explosion. And now, not only are supposed Christians, people who believe, listen to me, from the text of Scripture who believe that women could minister, not only are you a supposed Christian, but now, please hear this, you are a feminist, rebel, and a cultural Marxist. <laughs> sorry, I just, I, I'm, I'm sorry, guys, but if you can't see the stupidity of the way this argument is done, I don't even care if John MacArthur's right. Please hear me. I don't care if he's right. This is not how you make a case. Now, he goes into all kinds of biblical things elsewhere from this. Okay, so I'm not telling you this is the only argument he makes. But I am telling you, this is the popular stuff that gets pushed out there so that everybody holds on to it and says, see, we got to stop these women. You know why? Because you're all going to turn us into Marxists. <laughs> Didn't you know that? This is absurd, guys. And so he doesn't believe that it might be a rebellion against the Bible. He believes that it might be the most obvious rebellion against the Bible. And I was thinking murder might be the most obvious rebellion against the Bible. But no, women preachers are. <laughs> I'm not sure what to even do with that, church. But that's how absurd it is. And listen, before you get all settled in, I'm going to do the exact same thing to the other side. <laughs> right? I'm going to pick on the other side just as much. So... Women are, in John MacArthur's words, women who try to be in ministry are a disgrace and they're in opposition to the clear command of the Word of God. Play the rest of the video. I can't think of anything that's as far-reaching and transcends all denominations as the woman's rebellion against the Word of God with regard to women preachers. Women who pastor, women who preach in a church are a disgrace, and they openly reflect opposition to the clear command of the Word of God. This is flagrant disobedience. It has been acceptable in our culture and now acceptable even in the evangelical world. Okay. There's the traditionalist complementarian view. That's just one point on it. Trust me. There's a large spectrum there. Okay, let's move to the egalitarian view. This is N.T. Wright. Now, N.T. Wright is, uh, N.T. Wright's going to fool you. N.T. Wright's a soft-spoken guy, has a British accent, and automatically, he just seems smarter than me. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, don't let it fool you. Okay, so let's go with N.T. Wright. 
As with many other things, I want to go to the resurrection. I want to go to the resurrection stories of Jesus in the, in the first light of Easter Day. Uh, actually, you know, without the resurrection of Jesus, everything falls apart anyway. There is no Christianity. And within that culture, <clears throat> the idea that the prime witnesses to the most important event in the whole story would be women in tears is so counterintuitive that as a historian, I have to say, nobody would ever make up that story. Interestingly, in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul quotes what is now the shaped up and polished tradition, the women have disappeared already by the early 50s. Mm. Here's our tradition, and we know that people aren't going to believe us if we say he appeared first to these women. Mm. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's all very clear the mm. first person to see the risen Jesus were the women. And particularly, the first people to be told to tell other people that Jesus is alive again. Mm. Okay. Doesn't he sound awesome? <laughs> it's right off the bat. I'm like, just, just read the phone book to me. I'll fall asleep. This will be amazing, right? But I want you to, I want you to see how N.T. Wright does the same thing that John MacArthur does. First of all, he makes hasty generalizations, which is a logical fallacy as well. It's an appeal to a relevant and irrelevant authority. Notice what he starts with. He says that the resurrection is the most important thing in Christian life. Did you know that that's true? Paul says, without the resurrection, your faith is pointless. You might as well go believe something else. Is that true? It's true, right? And so, do you want to be on the side of people who believe that the resurrection is the most important thing ever? Yeah, you want to be on that side. That sounds awesome. And because the resurrection is the most important thing ever, and the prime witnesses, that's a title he gave it, were women first, therefore women in ministry. This is not an argument. This is nonsense. Women were the first to observe the tomb. They were the first to say, oh my goodness, he's not in there. Therefore, women in ministry. Do you understand that that's not an argument? Because if you don't understand that's not an argument, we've got some work to do, okay? The resurrection is vitally important. Let's work people up. They were the first to observe it. Awesome. Therefore, aliens are real. It's, it's the same nonsense. There's nothing that proves anything by this idea. And yet, this is going to be one of the largest arguments from the egalitarian side. The prime witness, he says, are women, which is, and he goes on and he says, which is counterintuitive. This is a logical fallacy called post hoc and statistics, right? It's a correlation versus causation fallacy. I'm going to show you a picture next week that'll just crack you up about correlation causation because I'm going to go deeper into it. But correlation causation, just because Something is correlated with something doesn't mean it caused it. Just because the resurrection occurred and women were the first to declare it doesn't mean now we have a cause. Now we have a thing that we need to promote and do. It's just not an argument, okay? Those, these fallacies recur over and over. But the worst thing that N.T. Wright does in this is this. He sets the Bible at odds with itself, Notice again that he says the prime witnesses are women, that this is a counterintuitive revolution, and Jesus is the one who did this, and it's displayed in the Gospels because the women were the first there to see it and to tell of the risen Lord, 
And then he says, but by the time we get to Paul, they've doctored the tradition and now the women are erased. That's nonsense. It is absolute nonsense. And here's why it's nonsense. Because Paul wasn't trying to prove anything and neither were the Gospels. The Gospels were doing exactly what we need to see in Scripture a lot of times. And that is the difference between prescription and description. The Bible described an, described an amazing event. Women ran to the tomb first to see Jesus as risen, or first to realize he was risen, and run back to proclaim. That describes something. Can you point to me the verse that says, and the prescription is women in ministry? You can't. You can't, because it's not there. It's not an argument again. And if you make it to where Paul is doctoring the Scripture, we have a lot of other problems. People aren't going to believe us when he says, they first appeared to women, so let's change this up. Well, why did the Gospels record it then? People aren't going to believe the Gospels. Why does Paul commend twice as many women in Romans 16 than he does men? Why does he do it? I thought he was doctoring the tradition so that people would believe him more. Do you see what N.T. Wright has done? He's created a problem in his own position where now I can just pick which part of Paul I want to believe. And I can throw the other garbage out anytime I want. These are not arguments here, church. And they are very persuasive because he's gentle and British. (laughs) Right? It doesn't mean anything. Okay? So, let's continue with this awesome video and this voice. Mary Magdalene and the others. Now, all Christian ministry flows from the announcement that the crucified Jesus has been raised from the dead and is now the Lord of the world. And... This is just a cultural revolution that Jesus had up till then chosen 12 men um, who all let him down in various ways. Pause. Rhetorical device. He had chosen 12 men who, by the way, all failed him in various ways. What's the point? What's the point? Guess who else has failed him? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. (laughs) In case, hey, women, please say this to yourself. I failed him too. Okay, good, because we failed him too. Okay, this is an absurd way of doing things, but it's the way you make arguments that sound very persuasive but have no substance. Keep going. He now transforms that, this is part of the newness of new creation, it seems to me, by saying, now, actually, this extraordinary explosive message is so subversive that the best people to take it are strange women who no one's going to believe. Positive. <laughs> The best people to take this message are strange women who no one's going to believe. So all I want to say is chapter and verse, but (laughs) chapter and verse. But did you know that this actually contradicts the very gospels that he holds to be more important than Paul's words? You know who Jesus prayed for in his high priestly prayer? He prayed for his apostles to take the seed which was planted in them to go into all the world and plant that seed there, which would extend to who? You and me, every one of us. And guess what? Jesus actually prayed that the people he thought he was going to send out were a bunch of wackerdoodle 12 men, fine, and women when he sent them back from the grave. But it doesn't follow that he had a cultural revolution in mind in which he was going to send strange women to tell this truth. 
You know why it doesn't follow? His prayer doesn't follow, and he just should have picked 12 women in the beginning. You want to talk about a revolution? That would have been fantastic. Like, welcome to feminism. Anyway, so, okay, but that's not what he does, okay? So, listen to me. All Christian ministry flows from the resurrection. Women were the first to witness the empty tomb and, that, and to tell others, therefore, nothing. Nothing. It's a description of history. It is what happened. It is not a prescription for anything. The problem with the counterintuitive narrative of the Gospels versus the 12 apostles versus Paul's commendation of women in Romans 16 is all making the Bible an enemy of itself, right? So he goes on. Here's what he says. And indeed, the disciples themselves don't, but they were telling the truth. Mm. And it seems to me we need to inhabit that story and that way of looking at that story. Pause. We need to inhabit that story and that way of thinking about it. Why? You've not given us any proof for why we need to inhabit that way of looking at something. Guys, I'm doing this for a very important reason before we start this series. Because what I don't want to do is spend seven more weeks talking about arguments that are total nonsense. Okay? What I don't want to have is these conversations where we talk to each other and we say, I believe that God says, and your response is, nuh-uh. <laughs> right? That's not an argument. That's not an argument. You know what the worst of all non-arguments is? I believe that the word of God says this, this, and this, and your response is, clearly we can't have a reasonable conversation. The conversation's over. You know what that's a sign of? You lost. <laughs> right? We're not being humble, we're not being gentle, we're not being charitable. We're actually not even listening to each other if this is the way we're going to deal with things. So what I want to do is I want to show you first what the positions are. I want to first show you the absurdity of appeals to emotion and, and picking on character and all these other things because they're not doing anything. If you believe that women are supposed to be in ministry, I do not believe that you're a cultural Marxist and a feminist. And if you believe that everybody is completely equal in every role that there is, I don't believe you're a cultural Marxist and a feminist. If you believe that only men should be preaching, I'm not writing you off as some sort of lunatic or traditionalist fundamentalist nut job. Okay? There is a lot to be considered within these particular arguments. So let's play the rest of his video, and then I'll close, up, close this out. And say... So was this just a flash in the pan? Mm -hmm. And was this just, well, Jesus, you know, had a special thing about his mother or Mary Magdalene or whatever, but after that it all went. And the answer is absolutely not. Read Romans 16. Now, of course, most people studying Romans find Pause it hard to get to. for a second. Read Romans 16, because now Paul is not erasing history. What? This doesn't make sense. 1 Corinthians 15, tradition has been changed. But the same guy who wrote Romans 16 is now proving his point. You don't get to play this game with the Bible. You do it, you either accept it all and you wrestle with the text, or you just throw it all away and we'll just wing it, right? Judges. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. Let's Chapter go. 8, <laughs> let alone 11, or let alone 16. But Romans 16 is explosive. Paul greets all these church leaders in Rome, many of whom are women who are church leaders in their own right, one of whom 
is an apostle, he says so, Junior, and there's been a, a huge attempt to try to make out this is Junias, a man, but the scholarship is quite clear. This He's is a female right. woman. She Junia is an apostle. Is a woman and for an Paul, apostle. that means somebody who has seen the risen Jesus and is thereby commissioned to be an authorized representative. Mm -hmm. And here's the crunch. The first woman mentioned in Romans 16 is the bearer of the letter to Rome. Now, now if you're... Pause. Watch what he does here because he effectively says nothing, and I'll point it out, okay? He's going to use a lot of words to say nothing. Go. Paul, and you know in your bones you have just written a letter which is the most explosive piece of theological writing you can imagine. Who are you going to give it to to take it to be read under Caesar's nose in Rome? Well, presumably some strong man. No, a deacon woman from the church in Cenchreae. We assume she's an independent businesswoman, Phoebe, and she's on the way to Rome, and what we know about um, the way letters worked in the ancient world was if you sent a letter via a friend or somebody, the chances are, you can't prove this, mm -hmm. the chances are they would be the one to read it out. They might well be the one to explain it to people who, I mean, faced mm -hmm. with Romans, we'd have a thousand questions. Yes. I'd have a thousand <laughs> questions. So, so Phoebe, tell us what... So the probability is that the first person to expound Paul's letter to the Romans was a woman, a deacon from the church in Cenchreae. And I want to say, get used to it, guys. You know, Get used to it, guys. We've proved something here. Here's what Hinty Wright just said. He said, here's what we know. Here's what we know. The chances are, you can't prove this, it might well be she was the first to explain the Romans letter. That has a whole lot of words that say nothing. This is what we know. Do you know what that means? That, that implies fact is following. This is what we know. The chances are, you know what that means. Go to a casino, right? Chances are, right, you can't prove this. You know what that means, right? You can't prove this. That's what that means, right? They might well be the one to explain it. And then he does this really funny rhetorical thing. He does this thing where he goes, everybody thinks that Romans is the most dense literature that Paul has written, right? It's unbelievably hard to understand. Because it's unbelievably hard to understand, people would no doubt need it explained. So what we know might well have been, chances are you can't prove this. Phoebe was the first pastor to explain it and expound on it to the church in Rome. That's, what the flip are we talking about right now? I don't even know. This is not an argument. And people just watch on YouTube and they're soaking this crap up. They're like, that's it? Women pastors. I, I, I don't care where you land. I'm just pointing out these are dumb arguments. These don't get us anywhere. And yet the world is more filled with this argument than people who say, can we talk about 1 Timothy chapter 2? Can we talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 14? And while we're there, 1 Corinthians 11... Can we, can we talk about those things? Can we talk about Galatians? Can we talk about Ephesians? Can we talk about these things? Nobody does this. It's just all of this, uh, well, I shoulda, coulda, woulda, I hope it was this, I think it sounds better this way. It's all appealed to emotion. It's all nonsense. Continue on. This is explosive, but it's the sort of thing that happens mm -hmm. when new creation is going forwards. And to row back from there and to say, well, you know, Paul didn't really mean that, and so now we've... So I then want to say, what are the forces in our culture today, particularly, I have to say, in America, mm. 
which are forcing some churches and some people to fasten on one or two verses from elsewhere. Uh, John MacArthur says that if you believe women should be pastors, you're a cultural Marxist and a feminist. And N.T. Wright says, if you don't believe this, you're fastening on to just American nonsense. It's the same political argument. The deal is, he does it softer and with a cool accent. And so people are like, that's awesome. Neither of them have made an argument. Okay, I'm going to skip out of the video, and I'm just going to close this way. Here's what we need to understand that is governing all of this as we move in to the weeks ahead. First is a statement from the work, uh, from the book, Two Views on Women in Ministry, produced by Zondervan. I highly encourage you to look it up, to check it out if you're interested in this study more. Here's what they say in the introduction. Evangelicals have not yet settled the exegetical and theological issues involved in deciding if churches should place some limits or no limits on the ministry of women in the church. The exegetical issues are complex, and even the most enthusiastic of promoters from one side or the other cannot justifiably claim that the opposing view is beyond the limits of orthodoxy. Nor can one assert that a particular view is the only one reflected in, uh, reflecting a belief in biblical inerrancy. If this book says neither side can find an absolute in this, it does not say don't pick a view. We have to operate on a conviction. We have to see something and say, with the knowledge we have, with the information we have, we're going to walk forward this way. That's what you do as a leader, okay? That's what you do. Best information you have, and you walk forward, okay? But for any of us to believe that the person who disagrees with us is beyond orthodoxy or wrong, don't go there. Don't be a John MacArthur and don't be an N.T. Wright and say, come on, guys, it just needs to happen this way. What we need to do is actually weigh the evidence and listen. And then if we hold a position and the church down the street disagrees with us, then we disagree. But we love them. And here's why we love them, church. This is what Ephesians says yet again. I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, church. There is one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Who is Paul talking to again? The church. And who is the church comprised of? Men and women. And he says, you all have a gift and it has been given to you according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he says this from verse 11 to, I believe, verse 17, 16. 
He says, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastor and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. What we've lost sight of is the work together for the furthering of the gospel. And what we've gotten our focus on is who's in charge. And we've missed the point. We've lost sight of the fact that we're a body trying to bring people to unity and to love or preserve unity and bring them to love. We've missed this. And what we do is argue, who's the boss? And we're missing the point. And Jesus tells us, you don't lord it over each other like the Gentiles do. That's their way of doing it. Our way of doing it is all y'all submit to all y'all. And there's a message behind it. There's a beautiful way it happens. But please, we have to understand it. So it goes on in verse 12. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body in Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, That's the man in reference here, just so you know. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by the waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, men and women, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, men and women, according to the proper working of each individual part, men and women, cause is the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Guys, there's a deep divide on this issue. And instead of mudslinging, you cultural Marxists, right? Instead of mudslinging, come on guys, just get with it. Instead of mudslinging and missing the point, Why don't we just go to the text? Why don't we go to the Bible? And then, knowing that people can hold opposite positions from the same text, let us go to that text, let's pick a conviction, and let's walk in that conviction with gentleness, with love, with humility, and with grace. Amen? That's our call. This is tricky stuff. This is tricky stuff. So as I close, I want to tell you that women that are in this room... No pandering, no placating, no playing games. You are 100% safe in this church. You are valuable. You are necessary. You are called. Let's see how God does it. Let's see what he's going to do. Because it's a beautiful thing. I I can assure you it's a beautiful thing. Okay? You are safe here. 